Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. Three gods in one. That's how many Christians would describe what's called the Trinity. But what exactly does that mean to you and me? And why would God need to divide himself up into three parts in order to do what God does? If you've ever asked yourself those questions, you've come to the right place. Dr. Jennings joins us today via Skype to talk about the Trinity and what it means to us personally. Dr. Jennings, what do we need to know? Well, the way we speak about things and the language we use can sometimes infer things we didn't mean. And in your opening, you talked about why would God divide himself into three parts. Mm -hmm. That could sound like there's actually just one individuality, not three individualities. Mm -hmm. And one individuality separates himself into three separate parts, but it's still the same person. Uh And that's not how I understand the Trinity three separate individualities with three separate identities that are all one in some aspect that we can't fully comprehend. The best analogy that we can comprehend as human beings is when we enter into a marriage relationship as God designed, the two shall become one. They retain their individuality, but they're united in a way that the two become more than the component parts. The joined union becomes one married couple. They become a parental head. They have many aspects of oneness, even though they are two individuals. That's the best finite beings, I think, can get their mind around the idea of individuality being one. We also have the idea, though, we can be one as a collective one. We are one nation under God, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there's a collective one. And so the the Bible's terminology about one God, yes, there is one God, but there are three individuals that make up the Godhead. Okay, so when we say the Trinity, that's not God dividing himself up. That's taking three elements that become one God in thought and action. Am I right? Three unique individualities that are eternal. They are all omnipotent. They are all pre-existent, having life original, unborrowed, underived. It is not like an amoeba where it splits and now you have two amoebas, one giving birth to the other, which some commentators or theologians try to speculate on. My understanding is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all pre-existent with their own life original, underived from another source. And so they exist in a unity outside of our linear time, an existence in infinity in some way that we can't fully comprehend. We'll come back in a moment and deal with how the triune God has been attacked by various constructs and ideas through history, and like the Aryan movement and so forth. And I don't mean Aryan as far as Nazism. I'm talking about the Aryan theology of the first century with the Ostrogoths and Visigoths and so forth. But the importance, why is it important that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And this is where it comes to understanding how reality functions. The Bible tells us God is love. Love is not simply an emotion. It's operational or functional. And the Bible tells us the way it functions. It's not self-seeking. It's other-seeking. It's outward-moving. It's giving. It's beneficent. Love cannot function in a singularity. Hmm. If you're isolated alone with no other being around, you can't love. 
you have to have an object to give, to sacrifice, to pour yourself upon in order for love to function. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It puts God in such a beautiful light. Right. So if we actually teach that there was a time in, in history past, in eternity past, where there was only a singularity, then at that point in eternity past, God is no longer love. Mm-hmm. He's something other than love. And the minimum number you can have for there to be self-sacrificial love is three, not two. Some will say, well, there was two. There was Father and the Son, but no Spirit. But when you have two, you can actually have something that approximates love or an impersonator of love, which is narcissistic admiration. Mm. And you see this in young couples who get married and they constantly adore and fawn over each other. They seem to be perfectly in love and they may go on for several years and then they have their first child. And when the mother begins to give her attention and time to the child, the narcissistic father will become angry and petty because he's not getting the attention anymore. Mm. And so what appeared to be love when they were fawning and paying attention to each other was not actually love. It was self-centered adoration that was being validated. So the minimum number to have genuine agape, other-centered, self-sacrificial love is three. And this is what we see in the history of the Godhead. You see them always sacrificing to uplift the other. Christ never sought glory for himself. Mm -hmm. He always sought to uplift the Father. The Holy Spirit never seeks to uplift himself, always seeks to uplift Christ, and so forth. And so there's always this other-centered element, and this is when you understand how God's kingdom functions, why we understand the triune God is real. And all the attacks on the triune God that try to undermine the Son as being fully God or the Holy Spirit as being God are ultimately attacks on God's character and move the construct to an authoritarian God. We have an authority that rules over rather than a sacrificial God who gives up himself for the good of his creatures. When you move away from that two people loving each other and add that third person in there, you add an element of sharing. Would I be right in saying that? Suddenly you have to share love with others that may not be just completely focused on you. Well, that is correct. Once there's the third one, then it reveals whether this is other-centered love. And the loving parents, when they have the child, they both rejoice in the child and both sacrifice themselves for the child. And they they celebrate those opportunities. But the narcissistic one will feel deprived, will feel jealous, will feel envious of the time and attention that they're not getting. Hmm. Well, you're telling us how this is going to benefit us. I can see immediately how that is happening. What else do we need to know? So this is really critical. When we look in history then, there are these attacks on the Trinity. Now, the Trinity, let's be fair, is not a word you will find in the Bible. It's just a construct that means triune or three, like tricycle or tripod. Mm -hmm. And so this word came along in church history to describe the three members of the Godhead. Some will then attack it and say, oh, that word is made up by, you know, the Roman church, therefore it's pagan, so it's not biblical because you can't find the word in the Bible. Very primitive thinking to think this way, because the word is simply describing a construct or an idea that is in the Bible. And so you will find in the scripture many places that talk about the divinity of both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's John chapter 1. It can't be much more clear than that. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
And so the Word who was God became flesh. Many other texts, uh, the disciples worship Jesus. Well, we don't worship a non-God. That would be paganism. So Jesus, in fact, is fully God. But Jesus was attacked in the early Christian church when some of the early converts believed in the Father, but taught that Jesus was not fully God. Jesus was maybe a sub-God, maybe he was the offspring of God, he came at a later time in universal history, or maybe he wasn't even fully God, he was just a, he was just a, a good man. So lots of theories about that. But as soon as you do that, what do you do to the character of God? And you remove him from a being of love to a being who is an authority who can be loving, People will say, well, he's not only loving, he's also just. You'll hear those types of things. And they're letting you know they've dethroned God from the supremacy of an infinite being who constantly disperses his own energies in order to create and uplift his universe to a being who rules over and enforces upon his universe. Are they different in function as far as I am concerned? When I pray, who do I pray to and what do I ask for? Okay, this is another great point. The first attack in history was really against the sun, and that still kind of persists, but it's kind of faded. The more recent attack on the Trinity, and it's really kind of going around the Christian circle in the last 10 years, is an attack on the Holy Spirit. Well, there's no really Holy Spirit. There is God the Father. There is God the Son. But the Holy Spirit is just a reference to God's infinite presence himself. There's just two. There's not three. This attack has come along. But again, when I have talked to people who have this approach and I explain to them how love works, I ask them then to explain how in eternity past can love function as a singularity. Yeah, yeah. And they can never, there's never an answer for that. And so they, they move off onto something else and they'll try to get into this Hebrew word or that Hebrew word because they want to confuse the issue. But when it comes down to it, it really is about the function. And what is then the function of, of the, and this is what you're bringing up, do they have different functions? Yeah. Because I got a question once that did ask that very, very question, is Jesus subservient to the Father? It seems like he's subordinate to the Father. The Father is, you know, giving him authority. Jesus can't do anything without the Father type thing. And so my way of understanding is that they all have the same capacities or abilities, caveat, here's a caveat, until Jesus chose to become incarnate. Mm. My understanding is that when Jesus chose to become incarnate, that he voluntarily set aside some of his divine capacities, abilities, prerogatives, whatever you want to say, and some of them are permanently lost to him. He surrendered them permanently. One of those being omnipresence, being at all places and all times, at all times. Mm -hmm. In other words, he chose to in inhabit a human physiology, and he inhabits that human physiology for real, becoming fully human for all eternity future, and therefore some of his infinite abilities he surrendered permanently for love to us. Now, he historically always had those, and my understanding is he could reach out and take them, but he perpetually, voluntarily doesn't. Wow. So they all had the same abilities to create, to speak things into existence, and so forth. So they could have all done any of the aspects any of them do, but in their own infinite wisdom, in the way sharing does, and you think about this with your spouse, do you in love have the ability to do certain things, or maybe with your child, do you have the ability to do certain things that you let them do because it brings them joy to do it? Right, right, 
Okay. And so it's not that one couldn't have done it. It's in the way they love each other and give to each other. They divide up responsibilities and roles so they all can share in it together. And so the father takes the role of being the source of all things that are good. Mm -hmm. The son takes the role of being the architect, designer, and action person. And the Holy Spirit takes the position of being the actualizer and applier of what the father and son has wrought out or achieved. And so then you make sense. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Okay? And so, and then the Son in his life journey achieves what's necessary for our salvation, but who is it that applies that into the heart of the believers? That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I don't go, the Spirit won't come. When the Comforter comes, he'll make known to you what is mine. And it's the Holy Spirit who actually writes into the heart the character of Christ, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me by the Spirit. And so those who want to deny the Spirit deny the agency of the Godhead who brings the healing presence to restore. And and this is why you can be forgiven any sin except the sin against the Spirit, because the sin against the Spirit is the sin that says, I don't want you in my life. And the Spirit is the agency of the Godhead who brings the remedy of Jesus Christ into the heart. Mm. Well, Dr. Jennings, our time has flown by. We could do a number of programs on this topic, but what you've said here really should get a lot of people thinking. I know it's gotten me thinking. Comeandreason.com is the website, listener. Lots of resources there to continue this journey that you're on of discovery that we're all on as discovery. That's comeandreason.com. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for your insights today. Appreciate it. Always enjoy it, Charles. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. Come and reason.